Do you mean, I squawked, that we are out here in the dark looking for something from a fairy tale? Wait, does this mean we're out here talking about a fantasy novel? It's a fig tree! It's an olive tree! It's the Aetolian Archives! The Queen's Thief read-along podcast for all you re-readers and nitpickers. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Noelle. And it's July 22nd, 2018, which means that the return of our boy is in a mere 240 days. Not that we're counting. We're totally not counting. But in order to return, he had to have his first adventure, so this week we're discussing Chapter 4 of The Thief. In this chapter, the gang crosses into Edis, and we learn the true object of their quest. This is a Lynchman chapter. We finally learn what the goal is for this entire mission, and we get all the background on Hamiathus' gift, and why they're looking for it. And we also get a lot of exposition about the countries and their relationships with each other, their political history, the political background of Edis. I actually really like that Megan Will and Turner put all of this um, exposition material in the middle of the book instead of in the beginning because now readers are already drawn in. We already know mm-hmm. the characters, we're invested in them, we're invested in the countries. Um, so I think that was just a really good way to do that. Yeah, instead now of- we're we're underway and it's still towards the beginning, but we've also gotten to know the people that we're going to be with and the environment in kind of a physical way. Because sometimes when you put in a bunch of, like, all of those dry details at the beginning, people lose interest. They don't get invested as easily into Mm -hmm. the beginning of the story, so that's cool. And Jen does talk about history in the first chapter Mm because he's a nerd, but... (laughs) Lives in a library. (laughs) (laughs) Lives in a library. (laughs) But she she spreads it out. Yeah. And that... Even that history is interesting. It's not overwhelming. It's, you know, small details in the first few pages. That, mm-hmm. And we learn that Sunus has wanted to take over Atolia for a long time, and what's preventing them is Edis. Edis won't let Sunus take an army through the pass. And so Sunus, as in the king of Sunus, wants Hamiathi's gift so that he can come to Edis and say, I'm the rightful ruler of your country you have to marry me. And so then if Sunus controls Edis, then Sunus will control Atolia. And so what seems to be happening at this point is that Sunus is going to take over everybody. And we know that's not what's going to happen <laughs> in the long run. But that's their goal. And we thought this history was actually really significant in light of everything we learned in the later books about the Mede invasion. Um... I hadn't paid attention to this since the last time I read, um, like, Thickest Thieves and Conspiracy of Kings, but this actually took on a whole new light for me after thinking about how the countries present day with Jen are fighting the Mede, and in this, so in the past invasion, um, Ambiatus and the Magus say in this chapter that, um, so after soon as drove out the invaders, they would have invaded Holia, but the Odysseans wouldn't let them. But um, hundreds of years later, when the invaders came, the Odysseans let an Aetolian army through because it was supposed to fight on the Sunician side, but the Aetolians joined the invaders against the Sunician's, and that's why Sunus 
and Atolia were overrun. But, um, the Mega says, the rule of Edis has never changed hands at the instigation of an outside force. So, I just thought that was so interesting that mm-hmm. here at the beginning of this entire saga, we have another invasion where if the three countries had banded together, yeah. all three of them, they would have chased out these other invaders and they would have retained their sovereignty, but they didn't. And then, now we have it sort of... So we have the contrast between past mistakes and this new opportunity to do something differently. Right. And the Magus even... I'm pretty sure the Magus brings this up in Queen of Atolia. Doesn't, wasn't he writing a history of the invasion? Yeah. To give himself perspective on this new made <laughs> invasion? Doesn't he say that somewhere? So I can't believe I never, like considered this before. That's just so interesting. And Edis is the country that has never been conquered. Mm-hmm. And so Edis is the country that still worships the old gods that used to be shared right. by Atolia and Sunus and Edis. It reinforces the idea that uh, these borders are permeable. Yeah, fluid. So it's worth noting given our discussion last week, that when they cross into Edis, it's not a marked border crossing. There's no checkpoint, there's no wall, there's no line. It's not something that you can see from the landscape. It's purely a human border. Mm -hmm. All right, so my question is, do you think that the Aetolians and Sunisians look down on the Odysseans more than on each other? Hmm... Or not. Yes. That's what I was leaning towards. I think so, because the Odysseans are backward and small. They still worship the old gods, yeah, so yeah. They're, they're this relic of a time that has passed. Mm-hmm. Go trips. Which, that's something that I want to... Um, make sure that we continue to think about as we go on this idea of Edis as this artifact and the world is moving forward uh, in light of Helen's vision, which isn't going to come for a while, mm-hmm. but it's good to keep that idea in our heads because I think it's relevant. Mm-hmm. In this chapter, they mention some women, which is great. Because this book <laughs> doesn't really have any women in it until Helen shows up at the end and mm-hmm. Atolia has her brief appearance. That's just something remarkable about this series of, is that we only have really mm, two women who are major characters. Mm-hmm. And then we have side characters like Frezine and Xanthi. And, mm, and they're rarely others, perspective like, characters. Right. And yet, this is my favorite series. <laughs> so... Good job, Megan, for making me love something that's mostly men. But. And the fact that this book doesn't have women or very many women doesn't mean that this book doesn't have a lot of gender, because I think all of these characters are very influenced by masculinity and expectations mm-hmm. of men, and it's not like men are neutral and women are gendery. Right. Um, but in this chapter, we have the mention of Edith is not so secure on her throne that she can risk offending her people's gods. No woman could be. And that's on page 75. And so Sunis believes that he can take over Edith because Helen can't possibly have 
a secure position on the throne as a woman. So even though a woman can inherit, it's not ordinary for a woman to rule alone, and there are a lot of obstacles to a woman ruling alone. And which, she's more precarious than a male ruler would be. Yeah. Something else in this chapter about um, just the countries in general is that once they're in the mountains, um, he narrates... We could see a bend of the Cipriccia twisting across the plain and beyond that a glimpse of the sea, which made, just made me pause and just think about, again, how tiny these countries are. So we looked up how far away that could be. If you're looking across a flat plain with nothing to obstruct your vision, how far you can see, and it's about three miles. Really, these are very small places. Yeah. I also don't really know how... Like, how many miles would they be covering walking on horses? Throughout the series, It, I mean, the characters emphasize again and again how tiny these countries are. and How all... unimportant in the grand right. scheme of the world. But this is just... Hits ya. Yeah. <laughs> so they talk about Hermiathi's gift, which designates the divinely chosen or divinely approved ruler of Edis. And it's something that people used to believe in, but don't necessarily believe in anymore. And Biadi says, but this is just a myth. And Jen's narration says, I silently agreed with him, page 70. Jen has yet to have his religious experience. He doesn't believe in the gods at this point. We can go back to that line about how Edis is not secure enough on her throne to risk offending her people's gods. So it's not belief that's conviction but rather i don't want to take the risk yeah <laughs> of doing something wrong if this is true or a, a sense of obligation to tradition that is very strong mm -hmm. even if people don't necessarily believe that the gods are active in people's lives now which maybe they haven't been maybe this is a revival of the god's presence in, uh, in the active world. I hadn't really thought about that before. I always kind of got the sense that that is what this is. Because, mm -hmm. like, later on, obviously, once Jen does have this revelation, he believes, but with Hamiathus' gift later, once it's in Edis and Edis has it, I feel like the general sense is... I mean, obviously, they believe in the gift because, like, you have to believe it once you're seeing it, but mm -hmm. then... Like, later, once the gift is destroyed, people start forgetting. Yeah. Going back to a more passive version of religion when they don't actually literally believe as they did when they saw the gift. Mm hmm So, I always got the sense when religion was discussed later on that Eugenides was the exception because he had this literal belief. Mm hmm On a related note, when they cross... Edis's main road from the capital city to the sacred mountain. And the Edis says that people probably think Polyphemus built these walls. And Sophos asks, who's that? And, and the Edis says, like, oh, it's the giant who people think built Sunus's Megaron. Mm -hmm. And, like, haven't you heard these stories? And he's shocked that Sophos hasn't heard these stories because everyone has. Mm -hmm. So even if religion is not necessarily huge in people's lives it's still constant in the background this is, this is the stents i'm getting with these myths 
people tell each other these stories. And I would go so far as to say that women are primarily the keepers of these traditions because Jen, when he's presenting this persona of somebody who's from Sunis but had an Edishian mother, uh, he talks so much about how he heard these stories from his mother. And the person who disapproves of Sophos knowing these stories is uh, Sophos's father. Mothers telling stories to their children and women preserving traditions that have been buried because of larger politics um, is a compelling narrative. Mm-hmm. And going along with that, something else that I think supports that idea is when you look at um, Helen's Helen and the Magus's differing attitudes towards telling these stories, because the Magus, as we'll see later when he actually starts telling stories and talking about the telling of these stories, um, he has a poor attitude about them. (laughs) (laughs) It's very academic. Very condescending, very... He thinks he knows better than the Odysseans these stories and what they mean, because even though the Odysseans tell them, he has a more educated, more cultural, mm, higher perspective than they do. So that attitude is very much at odds with that perhaps more traditionally female attitude that you were talking about. And later on, we see that Helen also knows these stories, and she's the one who tells them also in Queen of Atolia. She tells the story of Hespira to the Magus and Jen. And the only other person really who has these intense, revelatory religious experiences and visions, besides Jen, is Helen. That's right. That's a good point. Which we will go more into the stories and the storytelling next chapter, because next episode we'll be discussing the chapter that has the first of... The story interludes, which is very exciting. This chapter had zero mentions of wine because they're traveling and they can't take it with them. But it did have a high wine count. Uh, Jen complained seven times. (laughs) (laughs) Which may be the highest yet. That's chapter four. Next week, story time. Send us your comments, your questions, your thoughts. Chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com. Be blessed in your endeavors. Thank you for listening. This has been an Amateur Cross-Stitch production. Check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Anchor, and at atolianarchives.com. Sophos is perfect. He's never done anything wrong, ever in his life. life.